Well, here we are at church number four. I'm sorry, Bridget, I can't see you at all. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> church number four in the letters from Jesus in the book of Revelation. I'm enjoying going through these. Um, but now we come to another controversial one. This is the one where there's a rebuke to the church for allowing a woman, referred to as Jezebel, who called herself a prophetess, to lead this church astray in a huge number of ways. So we're going to look at the identity of this woman. We're going to examine the term spirit of Jezebel, what it means, and we are going to look at how messed up this church had become. Now, I'm going to read it. Uh, this is a longer one than all of the others. In fact, this is the longest of the letters to the churches in Revelation. I'm going to start Revelation 2 and read from verses 18 to 29. And to the angel in the church of Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. I gave time for her to repent, but she refuses to repent of sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have to what you have till I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Long one. There's a lot in there. But let's start just by asking the question, what and where is Thyatira? Well, it was another church, all in this same region, in what an area is now part of Turkey. But at the time, it was part of the Roman Empire and historically was a Greek city. In fact, it was an ancient Greek city called Pelopia. 
And then it was renamed to Thyatira, because that's harder to pronounce. <laughs> and now it's known as Akisar. Now, during this time in history, it was famous particularly for its industry. It was the center of trade in the purple cloth business. Purple cloth, purple dye, was the expensive one. It was the special occasion color. It was the royal color. And it kind of still is. I don't know if you noticed when uh, King Charles was coronated, he wore underneath the robe. And I don't mean to be dismissive of it, but it looked like purple pajamas. <laughs> but it's the significance of the purple rather than anything else that, you know, it's the royal colour. It was the expensive dye. So this city was famous for its trade in purple. Now hang on. We know somebody. I should have worn purple this morning, shouldn't I? Never mind. We know somebody, don't we, who was involved with selling purple. And that is Lydia from the book of Acts. She was the wealthy woman who converted to Christianity, and she's referred to as a seller of purple. Well, that means she was working in this very expensive, high-value trade. In the book of Acts, she is, it says that she was saved by listening to the gospel in the city of Philippi. But she's described in Acts 16 as she was from Thyatira. So she was in Philippi, probably selling purple, but she's from Thyatira. In fact, there's no record in scripture of Paul ever visiting Thyatira himself. So it's possible, and I'm just saying it's possible, that when Lydia went home, she took the gospel back with her, and this church was started through Lydia preaching the gospel. Now, I'm just saying that's possible. Don't read anything into that. The ancient coins of Thyatira saw, show that there were a lot of working guilds within the city. They had weavers. They had bronze workers. They had potters. They had bakers. This was like a working, crafting city. Not like a cultural city like last week. It's a working city. Think Birmingham, or Manchester, or Sheffield, you know, like a city that's just known for its work and its industry. Now, Thyatira had no special religious significance, unlike a lot of the cities. There was no localized threat to the church, other than, you know, the Roman Empire. The danger to this church came from inside. So what do we know about this church? Well, we know Lydia was from here, and she may have had an influence in starting this church. Lydia was saved around about 50 AD, and Revelation is written in the 90s AD, so a fair bit of time has passed. Who knows whether Lydia was even still there or still alive at this point? We don't know. And we don't know anything else about this church. We know that from here, it was in trouble. It had gone astray due to the woman referred to as Jezebel. And that in this church, there weren't many left who were still true to the faith. 
out of all of the churches covered so far, this is the church that had strayed the furthest. This is the one that was in the most trouble. Today, there is no church there, and there's no known believers in that city. So what is Jesus saying? Well, we have so little definitive information about this church, but there are a number of questions that do come up from reading Revelation here. First of all, what was the situation? Who is Jezebel? What did she teach? And what do the promises made to this church mean? So let's dig in. I'm going to start with verse 18. Revelation 2:18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. It's interesting that Jesus' feet are described as burnished bronze. A metaphor that the citizens of Thyatira would have known because they had a lot of bronze workers in the city. In fact, some of the members of the church might well have been bronze workers. But it also kind of, this sounds a little threatening, doesn't it? This is a, a depiction of power, of might, of judgment. The description's actually quite similar to the angelic messenger in Daniel 10, verse 6. says this, His face was like the appearance of lightning, and his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. Very similar to that imagery used in Daniel. And the eyes flaming show an anger. An anger against the sin that's going on here. But also a gaze that can penetrate through the surface. An eye that can see through the disguise and see what's really going on. Let me tell you, Jesus is never fooled by what's going on on the surface. Never. Jesus sees deep down to the core. And he can see what's really going on. The bronze feet stand for the immovable power of Jesus. Let me tell you, a message that starts with that description is going to be intense. Unlike some of the other letters, this letter is not a comforting one. This is Jesus saying, I see everything. I am immovable. We need to sort this out. Then in Revelation 2.19, Jesus says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So Jesus starts with the good. That bit's over within one sentence. <laughs> but listen, when you're going to have a go at somebody, it's a lesson to be learned here. Start with something good. <laughs> Start with something good. You know, it's so easy to always be critical. But Jesus points out there's some good stuff going on here. I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance. Let me just go through those things again. Love, faith, service, 
endurance. I gotta say, if you walked into a church and you saw those four things, you'd think that church was doing pretty well, wouldn't you? Not only that, Jesus says your latter works exceed the first. In other words, you're getting better at that stuff as well. This is a church that was growing in love, growing in service. I tell you, you read that bit and think I want to be part of that church. Read the next bit and think I'm glad I'm not. But the first bit, then we move into the bad. Revelation 2.20 But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. See, here's the problem with the church in Thyatira. The threat came from inside. Many of the churches around here were facing external pressures, people bringing false teaching to them. But this danger came from someone who was part of them. And there was a strong movement within this church, led by the woman addressed as Jezebel, that was teaching sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. Oh, hang on. That sounds a bit familiar, because last week we talked about exactly the same teaching. That was the teaching that was going on in Pergamum. The teachings of the Nicolaitans, the teachings of Balaam, it's the same thing, exactly the same thing. The difference is, is this has been spearheaded by this woman who is really deep into this teaching. And the church is accused of tolerating it. In other words, at no point did anybody, um, modern metaphor, excuse me for this, nobody grabbed the microphone. Nobody said, hang on, hang on, hang on. This isn't right. They were allowing it to happen. But rather than just being warned to repent, as we saw in the church last week, in this case, this woman was leading the church further and further and further away from the truth. And Jesus says here, I gave her time to repent. I gave her time, but she refused. Jesus is patient. He gives us time to turn around and change. But he is not a mug. And listen, there's times in our lives where we've been in similar situations and Jesus has given us time to repent. And I'm gracious that he is slow to anger. I am glad he's slow to anger. But remember, Jesus is not a mug. It's interesting, you know, this church on the surface seemed absolutely fine. If you'd have gone into it, you'd have seen a church filled with good works, with love. But it was rotten on the inside. Who was this woman? Well, 
We don't know. But we can get some information about what she was like. First, she claimed to be a prophetess. Now, the way the church was acting, clearly she was accepted to be a prophetess. That means she was in a position of power within the church, maybe even a position of some sort of leadership. Certainly she was able to speak into leadership, but she was a false prophet. Church, we need to understand this. Just because somebody claims to speak for God does not mean we should just accept that they do. We should test it always. Test them against the word. See, it wouldn't have taken long to see this woman's lifestyle and her teaching to test what she was saying against the word of God and say, she's a liar. She's a liar. She's not a prophetess. Listen, the book of Acts exists at this point. It was copied and circulated. This church had the book of Acts. So this church knows that James said, those are the two issues we don't bend on. Those are the two big issues. They wouldn't have been ignorant. Yet nobody challenged her. Nobody tested her. Instead, people started listening to her. This woman was a real, actual person. Now, her name may have been symbolic, but I'm sure the church knew who was being talked about, even if this isn't her actual name. The reason to, uh, the, there's two arguments here. The reason to guess that her name is symbolic is, well, Jezebel was known to be, in Israel's history, an evil woman who stood against God's prophets, a woman who led Israel into idolatry and the worship of Baal. It was a name associated with evil. And you think, when you've got a lovely newborn baby girl in your arms, think back to when Poppy was just, a, you know, you were naming Poppy. At no point did you go, oh, bless her. I think I'll call her Jezebel. <laughs> you know, you just, you wouldn't, would you? It would be like, it'd be like oh, bless him. He looks like an Adolf to me. <laughs> oh, oh, look a little Rasputin there. You just wouldn't pick those names nowadays, would you? <laughs> because those names have very negative connotations with them. Now, the counter of that is this woman wasn't Jewish. This is a far-flung part of the empire. So did the people who lived there really have any idea about this Jewish queen from hundreds of years ago and what she did? Maybe not. So, and, and in fact, Jezebel wasn't Jewish. She came from Phoenicia. Who's to say whether in Phoenicia, Jezebel isn't just as common a name as Mary? <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. So she could have actually just been somebody called Jezebel. And the answer to that is, we don't know. I think, personally, that because she has so many traits that match the Old Testament Jezebel, in that she was leading people into idolatry, she was leading people away from God, I think it's a symbolic name, but I don't know. 
Either way, she was teaching the very same compromise we talked about last week. And her false teaching had been embraced by this church. And things were getting bad. In verse 24, they're actually referred to as the deep things of Satan. You know, Paul talks about the deep things of God. Well, this is as far as you can go in the other direction. The deep things of Satan. She had a morally and spiritually corrupted and compromised this church. And she needed to be dealt with. If she hadn't have been dealt with, if she'd gone unchecked, her message could have spread from church to church to church. And her teaching could have become the prevailing view of the church in that area. See, sometimes you wonder, why has Jesus been so severe? So harsh in his condemnation. But here's the reality. If you've got gangrene... You've got to cut that limb off, otherwise it will infect the whole body. This woman had to be dealt with, or the whole church was in danger. And this church had fallen deeply into idolatry. And Jesus says, I will deal with this woman. Revelation 2, verses 22 to 23. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. Unless they repent of her works. Notice whenever Jesus is saying that there's judgment coming. There's always a way out. There's always a way out. And that way out is always repent. Repent. Where was I? Unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. Stay with me, we'll come back to that. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So we have the condemnation, now we get the consequences. When we rebel against God, when we go our way and not his way, there are always consequences. Real consequences that have to be lived out. And Jesus has given Jezebel time to repent. And she's not done it. Things have got worse and worse and something needed to be done. Both for her and her followers. Now there's two terms here. Those who commit adultery with her. God will judge those who have committed adultery with her. Now that could be literal. Because after all... That's the kind of thing she was teaching. But also idolatry in the Bible is, oft, uh, is often referred to as adultery. So it may be that there's people who've gone astray to her false teaching and her idolatry. Now that's not to write off the other side of it because it definitely says sexual immorality earlier. So that's definitely in the mix. But the terms are different. There's two distinct things, both of which were happening. She was encouraging people to commit sexual immorality and for people to go after idolatry. And the term comes up, I will strike her children dead. 
Now, I don't think this means her physical children, but rather those who have been birthed through her teaching. And she was going to be thrown onto her sickbed. She was going to be struck down. Enough was enough. God is slow to anger. But don't we just love to push it? You look at our nation sometimes and think, how far can we push it? We reached here the point where enough was enough. You know, those who are parents in the room, you love your kids. You don't want to punish your kids. Of course not. You want to make sure your kids are looked after. You want to make sure your kids are safe. But there comes a point sometimes where, for their sake, enough has to be enough. It has to be enough. You know, I used to be a little bit the same when I was growing up. I could push it with my mum, push it and push it. But there comes a point where she says, wait till your father gets home. <laughs> and Jesus says, Like the churches that were making the same mistakes. They hadn't gone as far, but Jesus knows what's going on. He searches the heart. He knows what's happening. This Jezebel and this church were to serve as a warning to all the other churches. So whatever took place in this church afterwards was enough to warn all the other churches from what was happening. And what happened to this woman? We don't know. But I have to assume if Jesus said this was going to happen, this happened. Both to her and her followers. Because there's always consequences for rebellion against God. Jesus then turns his attention to the rest. He says in Revelation 2, 24 to 29, But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, so there's some good people there who've resisted who have not learned what some of you call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have till I come. The one who conquers and the one who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken into pieces even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this letter ends with a word to those who have stayed faithful, those who have rejected Jezebel and rejected her teaching. And Jesus says to them, hold fast. I'm not going to lay any other burden on you. Essentially, you're dealing with enough right now. Keep strong. Keep going. To the end. And when we're in the kingdom, Jesus will give you authority. Listen, the world might be falling apart around us. It feels like the whole world is circling the plug hole. <laughs> Keep strong. 
keep a hold of Jesus. Because the kingdom of God is coming. To the one who conquers, remember your inheritance. It is to be an active part of the kingdom of God. Jesus says, I will give you the morning star. That's a weird thing to say, isn't it? And it could mean one of a few things. It could be the promise of the resurrection. As the morning star rises after the night, we will rise again after death. It could be a, um, about the conquest of the devil, because of course Lucifer means light bringer, the morning star. So it could be a promise of complete power over Satan and sin. Or it's a reference to Daniel 12.3. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And all three of those are quite nice. I don't think it's any of those. I think it's this one. Revelation calls Jesus the bright morning star. The promise of the morning star is the promise of Jesus himself. If we are faithful, what we receive is Jesus. And we'll never lose him. He will give us. He will give us himself. But if you think it's one of those other three, that's fine. <laughs> so what is it we can take from this letter? Well, first of all, I don't want to go into everything we touched on last week. You know, the teachings of the Nicolaitans, the teachings of Balaam, sexual immorality, idolatry. We've done that. No, I mean, rephrase that. <laughs> We've touched on teaching about that. <laughs> And we've already ministered into that last week. We had an opportunity to repent last week. So I don't want to dwell on that, but I do think it's important to touch on it. And I also think this next thing, I don't want to dwell on this, but I do think we need to mention it. We often hear this term nowadays, the spirit of Jezebel. And we see it like it's scriptural. But it isn't. The term spirit of Jezebel is not in the Bible. Not once. So whenever anyone says it, whenever anyone uses it, remember they're saying something that's not in the Bible. No ifs, no buts. You can check different translations if you want to. It is not. Well, it's probably in the Passion Translation, but ugh. Yeah. <laughs> in the Old Testament, Jezebel is an evil woman who stands against God and for Baal. And she is condemned. But scripture never once even suggests that she does it because she has an evil spirit in her. She does it because she is a high priestess of Baal. The term spirit of Jezebel is not used in the church until the 20th century. That's 20 centuries. Hang on, it's my math. That's 20 centuries. 20 centuries of church before the term is ever used. The earliest references I can find to it were in the 70s. 
uh, with a guy called Frank Hammond and another guy called Jonas Clark, and then it was picked up by Frank Damasio and Paul Kane. It is not a historical church term. It's not part of church history. It's actually relatively new. And it's been used in some weird ways. It's been used to cut down women when they're dressed provocatively, which is clearly a reference to Jezebel in Revelation, or the Old Testament Jezebel painted a face just before she was killed. I don't know many women who put the makeup on on the day they think they're going to die. Or sometimes it's just used against a woman you don't like. Oh, look at her. She has the spirit of Jezebel all over her. It implies that there's some spirit, some evil entity called the spirit of Jezebel that has taken control of this woman and therefore don't trust her. That is an appalling misuse of scripture. There's no scriptural precedent for ever using that term. It's also used today by so-called prophets who see themselves as modern-day Elijahs. So if somebody uses this term, if someone's critical of their ministry, and you say, well, actually, you're wrong about that stuff. You've got the spirit of Jezebel on you. <laughs> when they're saying that, by calling you Jezebel, what are they saying about themselves is, I'm Elijah. <laughs> Using that term, spirit of, suggests that somebody has an odious spiritual influence all over them. And listen, if somebody criticizes you, I think we should be a bit more gracious. <laughs> If you criticise me, can form a lordly cue after the meeting. Um, I won't come back at any of that with you. These prophets who teach falsehood, who often teach a therapeutic gospel, who make a prophecy and say God said it, who take churches into deception, they've got far more in common with Jezebel than the people that they criticise with it. Be very careful of someone who calls themselves a prophet and says to anyone who criticizes them, they've got the spirit of Jezebel. You've got to say, I'd be very careful. If, if you were to ever use the term, or you were to define someone by it, it would be somebody who claims to be a prophet and leads others into sexual immorality and idolatry, because that's the only real thing that has a through line. We cleared that up? We good? <laughs> Didn't want to dwell on it, but I think we need to tackle it. Because I've heard it said about some people. Just because somebody didn't like them. And that's wrong. So the big question for me when we read this passage is, how did this happen? How did this happen? See, nobody comes into a church, I wouldn't have thought, one day gets the microphone and says... Everybody, let's start worshipping idols and committing sexual immorality. Amen? It, that doesn't happen. If it does, I don't imagine it would work. <laughs> wolves don't tell you that they're wolves. They will tell you that they're prophets or apostles. That they can see what you can't see. God speaks to them in a way you wouldn't understand because you're not spiritual enough. They may call themselves apostles because that gives them an implied authority. They may even be gifted. 
You know, when God gives a gift, it doesn't mean we can't misuse it. I'm saddened by the number of instances where Christians who are prophetically gifted use that gift for personal gain. You know, virtually everyone's aware of some situation where Christians use a spiritual gift, whether it's teaching, prophecy, pastoring, or another, to gain influence over other people. That's wrong. The most awful abuse is when we abuse the prophetic gift. And we use it to justify things that are immoral. Or we have revelations that trump scripture. Wolves know how to speak like sheep. They know how to sound like a shepherd. And they know how to sound like prophet. Listen, I believe in the prophetic gift and the fivefold ministry gift. I believe in it. But I believe it can be abused. And it can be faked. This was a church that had dedicated believers in it that were led astray by someone who claimed to speak for God. Again, when it comes to prophecy, we're encouraged, test it. It has to line up with scripture. If it doesn't line up with scripture, guess what? It's false. This church, they were dedicated believers. They had love, they had faith. And Jesus said Jezebel seduced them. That means they were genuine, heartfelt disciples before they got led astray. See, just because someone claims to operate in the supernatural does not mean they're speaking for God. The very idea that the office of prophet can be just given to someone or taken by someone it is becoming more and more popular, that idea, and it's dangerous. You end up with people who've learned techniques, but are not prophets. Church, beware of people who call themselves prophets. Prophets should be recognized, not self-identified. If someone's a prophet, we should be able to see it because the things they are saying happen and they're accurate. It's not enough for someone to go, first week in church. Hiya, Dave. Nice to meet you. I'm Luke. I'm a prophet. <laughs> <laughs> you laugh. It's happened. <laughs> we see in Jezebel the ultimate abuse of the prophetic ministry. The prophetic ministry is such an important, powerful thing given to us by God. No wonder the devil wants to abuse it. Listen, when God anoints somebody and they start using the prophetic gift, it can have a massive, massive effect on a church and on believers. And the devil starts pretending that it's happening. It can have the opposite. False prophets don't start by going, let's commit sexual immorality. No, truth is always eroded gradually. The people that were in this church, they weren't idiots. 
they were seduced by false doctrine. Maybe it seemed more exciting than the stuff they had going on. It seemed more spiritual. It somehow seemed like it was the deeper things of God. But Jesus describes it as the deeper things of Satan. This church, they looked like real Christians. No doubt Jezebel seemed like a fine character. She must have had a good command of language and a presence to be regarded as a prophetess. But Jesus says, I can see through all of that. We must be on our guard, church. Thyatira is not the only church to fall to someone who's led them astray. It's not the only church that's been seduced into idolatry. Look around at the church in the world today and how it's been seduced by the world into a proven sexual immorality by people who claim maybe not to be prophets but to be bishops. I'll not go any further on that one. <laughs> Last week we focused on the area of sex and idolatry, and I don't want to just repeat the same ground. The real focus here today, church, don't fall for the, the seduction of false prophecy. Test prophecy. Test it. Don't take what I'm saying without testing it. Listen, we all bear that responsibility ourselves to test what's been said to us. If you come forward for prayer and somebody gives a word over you, that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? It's a wonderful thing. But test it. Test it. You can't just accept it as, well, it's been said over me, it must have been from God. Because sometimes, you know what, I... I, I I'll admit, I've done this. The flesh gets in. You start speaking the first few lines from God and the rest of it's from you. I repent of that, but that, it, I tell you, it happens. We must test what's been spoken over us. Prophecy that changes the word of God or goes against the word of God, but it must be right. Because God told There are many who call themselves prophets that actually offer nothing more than affirmation. They say things will come to pass and the things don't come to pass. It's funny, in the Old Testament, if a prophet did that, um, they never did it again. Because they were stoned. We don't do that today, and I'm, I'm, quite, I'm, I'm in favour of not stoning people, don't get me wrong. But maybe we don't give them a second chance. <laughs> How sad it is to me that one person, one person ruined this church and moved other people away from Well, you, no, 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 no. It wasn't one person. And that's the problem. One person couldn't do this alone. If nobody had listened to her, it would have been fine. 
One person can't derail a church. What it takes is others following, others encouraging, others participating in damage against this church. Listen, when we come against something that's false, we shouldn't encourage it. Mm. How often we do on Facebook? Little like. False prophets should not be encouraged whether they say it in church, whether they say it in prayer groups, or they post it on Facebook. We cannot encourage, we must challenge. Otherwise, he is the problem. Rot spreads. Rot spreads. Now, I hope you understand that I'm, I am not coming against the prophetic gift in any way. I'm saying we should protect the prophetic we should jealously guard the prophetic because it belongs to God, yet the enemy wants to use it to cause disruption. It's my prayer that we as a body of believers, and I know this is heavy this morning. Listen, you can't do this church without it being heavy. <laughs> I want us to understand this morning, the enemy wants to break all this up. He wants to shatter this. Or he wants to send us in the wrong direction. Because that's a win as well. An unfaithful church is just as much a success to him as a destroyed church. We must be very careful. Very careful, church. Test everything. Test what I'm saying. Test everything. When you watch YouTube, test it. Everything you see on YouTube, there's some of that. Don't test it with watching another YouTube video about it, though. That's a. <laughs> you can go down a rabbit hole that way. YouTube's a funny thing. Oh, I wasn't going to go there, but YouTube is a funny old thing. I watched one video, one video about the Nephilim. And the stuff has been sending me ever since. It's crazy. But that's how it gets you. The algorithm goes, oh, you like this sort of thing. Well, he is a little bit more extreme one. Do you want to try that? We need to be so careful because we are being talked at from every angle. Let me tell you where we should be getting everything from. That's the test for everything. That is the test for everything. If you're unsure, try this. Now, there's only one way you can really test things against this. By getting to know this more. This is a Bible, by the way, in case anyone doesn't know. <laughs> more and more. The closer we get to this, the safer the place we're in. Let's pray. Lord, I realize this morning's a bit, feels a bit higgledy-piggledy. But I really feel that you're saying something to us this morning. And that, Lord, you want to caution us when it comes to the prophetic. Lord, we want what's real. We want what's from you. Lord, we don't want anything that's not you. 
So, Father, I pray, help us be on our guard. Lord, if we've gone down some strange path, turn us round. Lord, I thank you that even with this woman, Jezebel, you gave her time to repent. And Lord, for all of us, if there's some turning around that needs to take place, if we've gone down some strange avenues, if we've got confused by some strange teaching, Lord, bring us back to truth. Bring us back to truth. And Lord, I pray that we won't tolerate deception. But Lord, you'll give us the courage to stand against it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks. I know it's a strange one, this one. It's been going around my head all week. It doesn't feel like a proper message. But I really feel there's something important that we need to take away from that. I really do. And then next week, we hit the city of Philadelphia. We get a bit more positive.